You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Malachi, you can kind of go there and mark it, the book of Malachi. Malachi was a prophet, of course. He uh, gave his prophecy during the rule of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, of course, was the civil ruler uh, sent to Jerusalem to build the walls of Jerusalem after the exile. And uh, Jews were uh, allowed to leave Persia and Babylon and head back to their home, to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and repopulate and rebuild uh, the temple and the city of Jerusalem. That's under Back in the book of Ezra, you have that account. And then uh, later on, Nehemiah comes about 90-some, almost 100 years later, does his thing. And uh, Malachi was the prophet, sort of uh, one of several, but he was the last prophet during that time of Nehemiah's leadership. Uh, Nehemiah was, uh, was uh, sent to build the walls, and he was there for uh, 12 years. And then we know from chapter 13 of Nehemiah that he went back to Susa as he had promised Artaxerxes, spent a year or two, and then came back again to Jerusalem for a sort of a second wave of leadership. Somewhere near the end of his first term, maybe year 9, 10, so on, 11, 12, somewhere in there, we're not sure, Malachi gave his final prophecy, the last time that God would speak to God's people for 400 plus years. So there's a seriousness to this text that's very important. And I've, uh, I've sort of thought through that I want to call this series Relevant Words for a Faithless Church. And I am not thinking of anyone here as being faithless. Our church is not a faithless church. But by my own strength and power and prayer and By God's grace, we are not going to be a faithless church. And so uh, it's important for us to understand what these last words were that would cause God to not only speak the way he speaks, but then to go silent for 400 years. And I know in the sovereignty of God, he has an enormous plan to bring uh, his son after the 400 years of silence and uh, completely change the course of human history. But up until then, this was a serious thing that leads into that next time of covenant uh, under uh, a new covenant called the covenant under the blood of Christ that would change our lives. So we're going to be looking back and forth because because this was a prophecy during the time of Nehemiah. I got to go back and fill in the blanks to some degree before we actually read. I want to go back, stick your finger here and go to uh, Nehemiah, if you would. Uh, back in our text, and just uh, we need to measure some of the uh, events and so on of that time and how and why it's caused this prophecy to be spoken from God and how it might actually relate to us. And so uh, if you'll note just in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, which is his second wave where he comes back to lead, Nehemiah tells us in verse 6 of chapter 13, but during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. And he's talking about, reflecting back on a a number of events that were taking place that were issues and concerns. Uh, So as he's speaking and addressing, he's just saying that there were some things going on, uh, and we'll come back and review this, but just for now, he says, during all of this, I was not in Jerusalem. So there was some trouble going on, and he was, while he was gone, 
He's, uh, it says, for in the 32nd year of our Xerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, and that is, again, about one or two years, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib the, uh, had done for Tobiah. So we have some issues that I'm going to review in just a moment. But I wanted you to see that he was gone, and then he came back. And there are things that he discovers that were going on sort of under the, under the table, under the current uh, of things that were going good. And so he's uh, going to address that. Uh, as he uh, uh, is going to review for us, I'm going to go back to uh, chapters 8 and 9 of Nehemiah. So you can just backtrack a little bit and bring up some history. Because uh, God's people had come back from exile, as we know. They had rebuilt the temple. That was in the first wave under uh, uh, Zerubbabel was the first one to come and start to build the temple. Uh, then, as, as you know, Ezra shows up and, and leads. And then eventually Nehemiah comes back. And so uh, the temple had been rebuilt. There had been a restoration of corporal worship, which was good. Uh, they had experienced uh, some deep spiritual convictions. And that happens in chapter 8 and 9 of Nehemiah. I'll just review very quickly. In chapter uh, 8, uh, Ezra is asked to read the word out loud in public, which had not happened in so long of a time. So Ezra the priest, verse 2, uh, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear of understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, midday before the men and women, who, uh, those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So this reading is taking place. And we uh, can tell you that as we look down in the text that uh, uh, this was an uh, incredible moment. Verse 10 says, uh, he's telling them that they should go and eat and drink and, and uh, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is a holy day to the Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they just heard the word of God. It says the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way and ate and drank and to send portions and to rejoice greatly for they understood the words that were declared to them. They had been uh, stirred by the reading of the word. Uh, all these, this crowd, as we, we know the story, so I'm not trying to spend time there, but all this crowd heard the, the reading of the word for in such a long time. They were stirred emotionally uh, in verse 9, it says they were weeping because of the, hearing the word, and they were told you should have joy about this and go your way and celebrate and so on. Then in verse 13, you have sort of a, a transition. On the second day, uh, there was, uh, it says, the, uh, the heads of the houses, father's house of all the people with the priests and Levites gathered to Ezra in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, uh, which the law had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths. So they're reflecting back on when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and had been uh, uh, away from the Egyptians and delivered from them, that uh, one of the things God wanted them to do was to have a day of, of mem remembrance of that. And uh, it was called a, a number of things, but certainly it was a day of building these booths to celebrate God's deliverance. Uh, and, and the idea was that God tabernacled his people. So they were established sort of each family had a sort of a shelter that they built, sort of symbolic of a tabernacle. And as families, they would celebrate this feast. Uh, it was, uh, became a very popular time in, in the history of Israel. And uh, God wanted them to never forget that he had delivered them. Uh, so uh, uh, this had become a sort of a point that to look back on all through their journey uh, it became a very significant time. Uh, so they're reading in the, uh, in the law in Deuteronomy about that very event, that this is something God had said they should do. And so they wanted to know why we've never done this. So now uh, the people went out, verse 16, the people went out, bought them, uh, brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in his courtyard uh, or the courts of the house of God in the open square. Uh, uh, it says, uh, uh, in the, the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. 
and there was great gladness. Also day by day from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So this was the last seven days bookended by the Sabbath day. And uh, they have again started to celebrate this. It had been so long since this had happened. This new generation of, uh, of uh, God's people were born, most of them, in a foreign country. They were born without a temple. They were born without uh, the reading of the law. They, they were born and raised in a pagan culture. And so for them, all of this is new. And uh, uh, they, as they're reading from God's word, they're saying, I, we should do what God's saying we should do. And that's a good thing. But what I'm going to address through our study is the fact that while that's going on, something else was going on. While there's good things happening to God's people and there's a return to some very meaningful and moving events and God's word is being read and directing their lives, something else was taking place. And the reason why Malachi comes along and has to give a prophecy is because that something else was corrupting what was good. So even though we see this celebrative moment, it, it has a downside to it. Actually, there were things going on, like mixed marriages that we'll see the, the truth of that. Uh, religious formalism was sort of coming back, but there was something missing there called righteousness and obedience and holiness. This was just one, one day and one event that lasted for eight days, but so much else was going on. There was a neglect of faithfulness in in uh, sacrifices and tithing. And uh, by Malachi's time, as he gives his prophecy, there was a gradual slide downward from what these children of Israel thought would be an acceptable standard of holy living and worship, but it was not yet God's standard, and we'll see that. So a number of things are there that I think are reflective of and concerning for our day today. These people were living in exile, following that severe discipline from God, as you know. But while they were living in that foreign land, this generation did not really inculcate deep spiritual convictions. If you live in a pagan culture long enough, having had no real experience and only having heard stories from some of the older ones about the past, You can imagine that that culture would have caused you to establish roots and uh, uh, deep, deeper patterns of acceptance and even sympathy toward pagan beliefs. And that's what happened to them. So even though this is a brand new event that's happening and they're they're moved on this day, there's a lot of trouble beneath the surface here. And Nehemiah discovers these things and wants to do his part to make course corrections in God's people. I, I got to take you back to chapter 13 again, if you would. <clears throat> Notice just some comments that he makes, and this is near the end of his time of leadership. And, and uh, uh, let, me, let me take you to uh, verse 20, 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their their hair. I've often thought about leading like that, but... Probably would not be beneficial. I would probably be in prison uh, shortly after doing that. Certainly the lawsuits would ruin me. But back in that day, things were so messed up that Nehemiah had to resort, in his mind, he had to resort to a strong leadership that demanded righteousness. I've learned over my life that demanding righteousness from somebody else is a failed process. You can't force anyone to be spiritual. 
to follow God, to hear his word. Parents have lost kids because they tried to mandate spiritual regulations on their kids. I do believe that in our homes we need to teach the word of God. I do believe that we need to establish behavioral patterns that say this is how we're going to live in our home. I do believe that. And I do believe that if we establish that and if we have a relationship with our kids that's a right kind of relationship, our kids will respond to that kind of leadership and be in the church when they're older. So many pastors' kids are the worst examples of those who have rebelled against God. And I know that's because there's been this built-in expectation on pastors' kids. I have two. I can tell you all about that. And I can tell you that uh, being raised in the bubble of a pastor's home, there's this expectation people put on pastor's kids. An expectation that says those kids should be just like we think their dad is or their mom is. And that's not always the case. And in fact, sometimes we, even I, as my parents were in the ministry, there's a rebellion to that oftentimes that people would see me a certain way and expect me to be like that. And that used to just make me so angry as a kid. And so here comes Nehemiah to a generation that has had no background in Judaism, in all the ceremonial laws and all the celebrations, and the temple was gone and erased, and the city is gone. They lived in a pagan nation. They, they, were, they grew up, they were born in a pagan nation. This is a long time after that now, and he's inherited a crowd that has such, uh, such uh, passions and emotions for uh, some things that are actually evil in the sight of God. And he's trying to uh, pull them out of it. So when you uh, look at the text and when you realize just what he's trying to do to, to stop the patterns and to course correct people's lives, he says he had to contend with them and he, he, he lost his temper and cursed them. He really didn't. He didn't curse the way you and I are thinking, but he did throw a curse upon them and he struck some of them and, as it says, pulled out someone's hair, I don't know who, made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters and wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons and yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? He goes on and says that among the nations there was no king like him who was believed uh, who was beloved of his God, uh, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all of this great evil, transgressing against God by marrying pagan women? Then he finds out something else that's not good. But notice verse 30. Here's the summary of what he's saying to God. Thus I cleanse them from Everything pagan. At the end, he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. He's, he's, he's re reviewing what he had experienced, and he's saying to God, I, I did this, Lord, and I, I ask that you would remember me for what I've done that I thought was good. And I cleanse them of everything pagan. Now, what I'm going to say to you is, probably that did not happen. On the surface, I think he does believe that he cleansed them from everything pagan. But we know that you can't force righteousness. And so the history after this is not good. Uh, this prophet, Malachi, is going to uh, state some things uh, that will tell us that there are some things not good. And uh, our God wants us to know that this is something that's a lesson for us even today. This prophecy is a link between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's a link between Judaism and Christianity. Yes, that's true. But the descriptions that are given in Malachi's day are just as relevant, I think, to any group that's claiming Christian belief, and especially to those who are not exhibiting fruit from their faith in Christ. Let's go back to our text in Malachi then and see... Uh, something of this opening statement. This one named Malachi, 
writes this, the burden of the word of the Lord of Israel by Malachi, which his name means messenger of God. So this is God's message to God's people. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And so he answers, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's the way this text starts out. The first thing that I would uh, remind us to here is that uh, there are many commentaries on this book and what we're going to find out in this commentary is an attitude problem that these people have. In fact, I believe that we're going to see in our text uh, seven uh, questions thrown back in God's face by a cynical crowd, a rebellious crowd, and that is what Malachi is addressing. Uh, one uh, well, several, I'm sure, but one uh, commentator uh, who uh, has given us some insight into this text has uh, drawn the issue that uh, he says this very sadly. He says, Malachi describes here that modern attitude of mind that considers man superior to God and that has the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and measure him by the yardstick of human morality. That, that's, that's the recurring attitude that we're going to find in this text. And it's an attitude that I'm seeing across the board in many churches today. A new questioning of God, almost with a satirical, cynical attitude, as we read God's expectations from us. And as today, there's a rebound to that, a resistance to that that is so alarming. And even here in our text, when we read good events happening as, as Ezra comes and as Nehemiah comes to, the, to God's people in this return from exile, that should be a glorious thing in their life. And yet there's such things going on that this book has to be stated and read to them uh, certainly first spoken by Malachi. And I believe it still stands true for us today. The first thing that's said here is very interesting. It says the burden. That word burden is another word. If you have a different translation, your Bible might say oracle. There is this burden or this oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Oh, that, that word burden or oracle, it's, it's talking about something that's so heavy, such a weight of truth that this has to be delivered, this burden. That's why it's called a burden here, this heavy-weighted message from God. Uh, you can imagine that if, if it's that serious, that first of all, it's affecting Malachi. He has to say this as God's messenger. But then it's also reflective of the fact this is coming from God's very heart himself as he communicates through Malachi. And it's sometimes difficult to say difficult things to people who say they're following you. Don't you think? Sometimes it's very tough to say truthful things to someone that needs to hear truth when they're not going by the truth themselves. Uh, the, it's a very not common phrase that's used here, by the way, because in Zechariah it's used, uh, not used often, but Zechariah uses it in chapter 9, verse 1, and in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, he uses the very same phrase. And it's talking about God's judgment. God's going to judge the nations in chapter 9 and in chapter 12 of Zechariah. God's going to judge Israel and all those who are against Judah. 
Uh, so uh, it, it's a strong statement. It's the weight of the statement that so uh, draws my attention to it, and I hope catches your attention this morning. God, God if God could speak, and I, I don't know if he's going to speak through me or not, I've asked him to, but if God could speak to us directly, I wonder what he would say today to the, the, the church broad across the world. If he could have a giant meeting with the church today, I wonder what he would be saying. And I think there would be a reflection much like what we know from the story that in the book of Nehemiah, many were celebrating with broken hearts, repentant spirits and calling on God while others under the scene are doing things that are so contaminating to the holiness of God that it would cause God to say what he says. I, uh, I know that uh, as I have done with my kids, as I have done with people that I love who I have to counsel with, Sometimes you have to confront people sometimes in the, in the journey of the church. Uh, I have had to often do that, and I can tell you that my style, thank the Lord, but my style has been oftentimes to tell people that I love them before I hit them on the head with truth. I don't know that that's just intentionally to, to disarm people or not, but I think it kind of is. But I want people to know, I want my kids to know, before I wallop you for something you just did, I want you to know I love you. Uh, don't think that I'm angry and I, I, I dislike you. I, I don't like what you did or what you said or how you behave, but I want you to know I love you. Now, take it like a man. <laughs> no, but I have had to counsel people, and you've you got to say hard things sometimes. And so it's just amazing to me that the first thing that God says to God's people is I have loved you. When God starts out a heavy oracle, a weighted message, and he starts out by saying that, you know something very, very serious is coming. I mean, the fact is that God loves us so much this morning. And he has told us over and over how much he loves us. And the Israelite people, even these who are really kind of new at what the faith is supposed to be, he has loved them, and they have a past they can look at. They, they certainly have the stories of how he has shown his love. And God could have rehearsed all of that again to these folks, but he's already done that. He rehearsed how much he loves us through the writing of Moses, through uh, all, all of the uh, time journey of the children of Israel uh, who had been delivered from Egypt and how much he demonstrated his love through his actions toward them, time and again delivering them. He could have talked all about the past like that. He could have brought up the, uh, just the whole thing of the book of Judges, how he brought judges who delivered his people out of trouble after they sinned. And he still went after them and brought them back out. He could have rehearsed all of that with them. But all he says here is that I have loved you. And God doesn't have to say anything more for us to understand that's probably true. But you can imagine now this crowd, they, they, they had been swept. Uh, most of them, like I said, their parents, I should say, had been taken from their home. Uh, their city was burned, their temple was destroyed, they were brought into exile. God had written before that that he was going to judge them for 70 years and then bring them back after 70 years and return them to their land. So most of this crowd that Malachi is talking to, they've been born in a pagan country. So all they heard were through other people. Some of their parents weren't even there. They were killed in the exile. So they grew up hearing stories and you can imagine that some of them were thinking, that sounds awfully severe that God would do that to my parents. And then along with that, uh, now they're thrown back into what they thought when they left uh, uh, Persia and, and the city of Susa or uh, wherever they left Babylon, when they left these places to go back to Jerusalem and start over, and they were actually sent with wealth from the king, and, and uh, you know, they had money to sort of start this project. They had enough to build the temple, uh, reestablish some of them into their old homes. And so they're going back to this whole new thing, a sort of a pioneer thing. But while they're doing all of that, there was a lot of trial and trouble in that process. It was not a joyful experience in many ways. 
And you can read back through the book of Nehemiah saying that they had enemies. Even back in the book of Ezra, they had enemies who stood against them. They had trial and trouble. They had uh, all kinds of things on the surface that were obvious trials and economics was tough. They, they weren't doing well financially and people were sort of scraping the, the, the bottom of, the, of life to sort of survive. It was not a glorious thing necessarily. And then they had all these uh, infiltrations of enemies and and they had mixed marriages and they had complaining wives, I'm sure, who said, why can't we go back where we came from, where it was actually good? They had a lot of trouble. So I can imagine having a lot of trouble that there was a lot of almost animosity toward God, maybe even blaming God for the circumstances that they were in. Don't you think? And so with all of that going on, here's God saying, I love you. And I'm, I'm going to suggest that even as he's saying that to them, the first thing he says, there is this response to him. Now, <laughs> you know, God has told them, and they would have heard this through the prophet Jeremiah before the exile, right as it was happening almost, but just prior to that, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, God had told his people, I love you with an everlasting love. Uh, and that's just before he's going to discipline them. Uh, so you know, uh, they, uh, their parents and the, the generations before them would have heard that, would have heard God saying, I, I love you with an everlasting love. My love is everlasting, but... And so God judges, and so they're, they're mulling that perhaps around in their minds. It, it made me think about how much uh, we talk about God loving us. I, uh, uh, we preach that, we teach that, the Bible says that, that God loves us. And I wonder if there's someone who would maybe be saying under their breath, How? Have you loved me? And behind that would be a cynicism that goes to perhaps how someone is raised, how someone has experienced truth, and how someone perhaps may be in a mindset to look somewhere else for love and for acceptance. And we know that God doesn't love us because we perform for him. God's love is something that comes absolutely and only through his grace, right? So when God tells them that he loves them, he could, he could have gone back and said, look at creation. Look what I did in creation, a perfect garden. I gave them every opportunity. I, I wanted to walk in the garden with them, with Adam and Eve, and have a relationship with them. That's what I want. But that was ruined by sin. God has always loved his people. But their constant faithlessness had brought discipline, and so that was in the story. God loves through his grace. God doesn't guarantee that you'll have everything perfect, but he loves you through his grace. And I love the fact that that's true, because love, if it springs from grace, love cannot come through performance. So I can't do anything to make God love me, and neither can you. For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. So that's how God's love comes to us. Uh, so notice he tells them now, I love you, says the Lord, yet you say. So this is God saying that, yet you say. So obviously God looks in the heart. God hears the comments. God reads the mind. God watches the actions. And God knows everything that's going on in our hearts and minds and lives. So here's God saying back to them what they already would have known but would have been shocked to hear from God. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? It's a very sarcastic question back to God. Coming from cold hearts, and those who feel as though maybe even God's the responsible person for their troubles. In what way have you loved us? And I hope that today that you're not 
having to ask a question like that to God. I got to go back and remind us that as the children of Israel, and this is, you really don't have to turn, I'm just going to tell you, but back in Nehemiah chapter chapter, uh, 9, after they have this worship service and uh, Ezra reads the word and and they have this tremendous, then they build these booths and then they're they're just uh, praising God for that. After that takes place, there is this uh, stirring moment again as Ezra is going to read some more. They ask him to read some more. And so he reads about the booths and that's taking place. And uh, that, that's a great event. And then uh, after the Feast of Tabernacles has been celebrated, or during, actually, in, in chapter 9, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, so actually this is after, uh, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. I'm reading chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Uh, after that, uh, they were fasting with sackcloth and with dust on their heads. So there's a repentant spirit going on. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners. That would mean that many of their family members, they had to sort of disconnect. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. From one fourth of the day and from another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. That's a lot of hours of listening and then responding. Then several leaders, it says in verse 4, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hash, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and uh, Pethahiah, these men, it says here, they said this. And so they're basically praying out loud as they lead the people. And they say, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And then they go through it in this long sort of prayer and praise moment, they rehearse to this younger generation all the past of what God had done for them. And uh, you'll see that uh, as, they, as they do this, if you were to read this on your own, that they're just rehearsing, going all through uh, the time of Abraham, going through uh, uh, the time of Egypt. They're rehearsing uh, uh, the law given on Mount Sinai. And as they're saying all of this, uh, as, they, as they sort of are worshiping God, uh, and then uh, all through this, you're going to read that, like in verse 16, but they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks. Uh, they did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders, but they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader that, to return to their bondage. They wanted to go back to Egypt, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Those are, those are wonderful things to hear from God. I wonder if anybody here has had times in your life where you have prayed, and this kind of verse may have been something in your mind that says, no matter what I've done or how far away I've fallen from God, I know if this is true in the Old Testament, it's got to be true today. I wonder if anybody here has ever prayed like this. Lord, some of the things I've done, but you are ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you do not forsake us. That's a great thing to say to God, isn't it? And it's true. But then it goes on. Verse, Even when they made a molded calf for themselves. And, and they said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt, which is an absolute ridiculous lie. Verse 19. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them. So this goes on and on and talking about how God delivered them. God delivered them. God delivered them. Clear over in verse 27. You gave them deliverers. That's referring to the book of Judges. Uh, verse 28, after, but after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when, I re- when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. Many times you delivered them according to your mercies. So as they rehearsed all this story to this new generation, this crowd is responding to this. And there's a, it seems like a moving of God. So down verse 37, uh, or verse 32, first of all, now therefore our God, the great, mighty, awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy. 
Uh, do not let all the trouble seem small before you. They're talking about themselves now. That has come upon us. Look at verse 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. So for many, there's an admission of sin and a call from God to be forgiving. And so verse 36, this crowd is responding. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings that you have set over us because of our sins. And they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle and at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. They're, they're describing the fact that everything they're doing is stolen and, and uh, th there's, no, uh, uh, there's no good response from the things they've done that blesses their own lives. It's all taken away. And so, verse 38, and because of all this, and here it is what I wanted you to see, we make a sure covenant and write it. It's the first time in the Bible it's ever been said. We make a sure covenant. Now, there's been many covenants made. Matter of fact, uh, when Ezra was leading, they made a covenant then. Uh, they, they, they make covenants with God, promises with God. But here they're saying, no, we're going to make a sure covenant and write it. And notice it says, our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. I wanted you to hear that and remember that because in the book of Malachi, Malachi is going to address the fact that while that, while that was taking place under the table, there was a lot of trouble going on that was not corrected even though this was such a great scene and such a great experience. And it's not different, I think, sometimes from church. When we have emotional services and we have times together that God's doing something and we're all thrilled and blessed by it, and that does take place, and I'm thankful for those moments when God blesses us and gives us these days of blessing. But quite frankly, under the table, there is always, and seems to be always, those who may look and give lip service to what's going on here, but sometimes in our flesh, there are things going on that are not resolved, not confessed, and we just go on thinking that we can just sort of pull it off and act like we're going along with God's people. And that is happening and happening oftentimes throughout congregations today. And it should be concerning. Back in... Uh, Chapters, don't, you don't need to turn. I'm just going to tell you so you can write it down. But in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, there's a discovery of uh, the, the very high priest himself was the grandfather to his, his grandson was actually connected and married into the family of one called Sanballat, who was an enemy of God, an enemy of God's people. And so there was this uh, sort of family uh, connections, sort of like mob connections. There was a family was connected to the enemy. And, and then uh, at the end, of, in chapter 13, there's a discovery that, again, uh, the high priest was also related somehow to Tobiah, the other enemy who was a leader of enemies. And uh, so all of this was going on. So priests uh, were connected to uh, evil guys and uh, pagan men. And all of that was going on behind the scenes under the table while they were leading God's people in worship and praise. That's what I'm talking about. It's a serious thing. It's a serious message. But it's a heavy message that Malachi has to deliver to his people. So when he says, God says, I have loved you. And there's this reply, in what way have you loved us? I would, uh, I would like to just remind us today that it's not unusual for us to uh, sometimes question God. I, uh, I've, I've told you this story, but I'll repeat it because it's worth it here. I have a friend named Dave. He was uh, a new leader in our church. This is a long time ago, different church. He was an investor. And so Dave was real popular, happy, smiley, funny, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful, fun guy to be around. And so while he's looking you in the eye and you're trusting him with your investments and your retirement, he was embezzling everybody he was helping. And today, right now, his money is in offshore accounts. People lost everything trusting him because he was a trustworthy kind of guy. Dave got caught went to prison, 
The money's still in the offshore accounts. But the worst part was not what happened to Dave. The worst part's what happened to his family. So they lost their husband and father. They lost their home because they couldn't pay for it. They lost their church because they couldn't face the mess of that. They had to uh, leave the community because the news was constantly putting his name in the news. And they couldn't go to school because of how that was affecting the kids and their friends and peers. And many who had trusted Dave who went to school with kids. It just goes on and on. I have often wondered uh, what's happened to the kids and his wife in their relationship with the God that they used to say they followed when their trusted husband cheated like he did. I'm saying that because, again, it, it goes to the fact that sometimes we can look real spiritual on the outside and we can have celebrations and joy and, and get excited with God's people and do events. And, and we have, uh, for our youth, we have retreats and we have other things that go on to bring joy and happiness and get them away and just, just you know, celebrate the good things God's doing in our lives. And so we do that. But while all that's going on, I wonder if under the breath of some of our students, not maybe not here, but certainly in other churches, there's a grumbling to God about you. How can you love me? How can you love me when my so-called Christian family is a joke? And it's no wonder we have a mess today. It's no wonder that you read the statistics of how many singles are leaving churches and don't want to have anything to do with church today. And it's often you can trace that back most likely to the hypocrisies that they discovered in the church or at least in their own families. So this is very relevant when you sort of pause and think when God says, I have loved you. And yet there's this response of sarcasm. In what way have you loved us? You can understand why that's a problem today. But look how Jesus answers their question. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And then he comes back. I'll tell you how. (laughs) Look what he says. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? (laughs) This is his answer. Wait a minute. You love us. Yes. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now you can sort of pause and say, how can they understand that? as God demonstrating love. And I think sometimes we read that and we're not sure exactly what God's saying either. So I'll try to put this in as simplest terms I can. Some have stumbled over this, of course. Uh, God has been accused by many of this strong attitude toward Esau. Why would God say he hates anyone? Uh... To be honest, both boys came from the same mother. The story is in Genesis 25. Uh, Both boys were born seconds apart. We know that part if you've been a student of the Bible. But they had completely different uh, destinies, of course. And so in the story in Genesis 25, uh, uh, let me highlight uh, as quickly as I can that part of the story because it's relevant to what I'm saying. But in chapter 25, just the fact it says in verse 26, Uh, or verse 27. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. How many parents have had a favorite and just don't want to say so? Be honest. It's often usually because things are going well with one and not the other. Uh, We grew up with that in our home. We had to Discipline one more than the other. And you hate doing that. And so we said a lot of I love you, I love yous before the paddling began. But notice it says now, so Jacob cooks a meal. Esau comes from the field. Verse 29, he's weary. 
He says to his brother, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Uh, but uh, we'll call him Big Red from now on. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau responds, look, I am about to, or Esau says, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Now, older son, uh, by law, Jewish, uh, Jewish culture, oldest son receives usually the father's home when he dies and his, his, uh, most of his wealth. Other things would be apportioned to the younger kids, if they're, especially if they're male. But the oldest uh, boy would have a claim to the main property of the dad and so on. That's what the birthright was about, really. But uh, Jacob says, uh, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And here's what the Bible says as the commentary of this. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so that was a contract made. They didn't write it down. I don't think anybody signed anything. It wasn't notarized. But they had this sort of a verbal agreement made. Uh, and, and life goes on. Uh, and you have to read uh, chapter 27, which we're not going to do. But chapter 27 describes the, the thing that Jacob does to uh, make sure and guarantee that he gains that birthright. So he deceives. His name actually means deceiver, Jacob. So he deceives his father into thinking he's Esau, does that through a costume and uh, pulls it off. But the point of the story here is that God chose to work through Jacob. Uh, God looks down the road uh, in all of our lives, and God doesn't make decisions because of what we're going to do, but he makes decisions because he's simply going to choose to work through us, and how he does that is his mystery that we'll never understand. But as this uh, Jacob uh, does eventually uh, in his life repent and seek God and those who are going to follow him become the uh, children of Israel who are mostly going to be called to repentance, yet they rebelled constantly. But out of that crowd, there's a promise made that a Messiah will be, uh, be born through that nation. With Esau, his careless, caustic attitude, his flippant attitude is that which God has already measured. Uh, Esau is someone that becomes the father of Edom, and this crowd hates God, hates Israel, hates the temple, and does everything they can to destroy the work of God in Judah and in Jerusalem, all through their history. So God hates uh, Esau. And I can't d decipher whether that was God before he was created hating him or if God hates him because of what he's going to do. That's for someone else to sort out when we get to heaven. But the point is uh, simply this, that God chose one and not the other. And why would he choose Jacob over Esau? Jacob was a deceiver and a rascal himself. Neither one earned God's favor. Can I just say that? God chose one over the other, and that's something you and I cannot explain. So if you want to play that Calvinist Arminian game uh, in my presence, I'm just going to throw it back in your face and say, neither of us understands it, so shut up and just go back to your home and follow Jesus. That's all you have to do, and no one can figure God out about this. Can I just make that one time clear to everyone who's listening? I think there's great things to be said by men who are scholars. I'm not denouncing that. But I am saying we don't understand that. I do not understand why God would choose to love me. I have done nothing that's good enough to earn or please him that often in my life. Have you? If you have, we need you to be in charge. So... God deals with Esau's non-repentant spirit. That's a whole other story that we don't need to share today, except I'll say this. If you read the book of Obadiah, it's only one page long, the, uh, one chapter, the book of Obadiah, he speaks out about the Edomites who are the followers of Esau, and he makes the statement in verses 10 through 14 of that little short statement 
that this crowd called Edomites rejoiced at all the trials and all the struggles of Israel rather than help them. And God is saying, I hate them for that. And I certainly hate the one who led the spirit of that into their lives. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 34 talks about the land of Edom. This is the land that Esau had that now has become a a land of multiple people and tribes. Uh, But uh, in the old times, the Edomites. But uh, Isaiah speaks out about them that the land of Edom uh, is actually a title for the place of God's final judgment against all unbelieving nations. So it's, it's not a good story that God is going to reject and judge everyone who stands against him. That's for sure. Okay, so let's wrap this up. So God loves Israel and God loves you because he chooses to do so. It doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to pray for others and we should be praying for people because I don't know their story in relation to God. Do you? I I, I don't know. So we pray for the unsaved. We pray for family members. We pray for friends. We ask that God will work in the lives of people and we are called to do that by him. But he will ultimately choose who he calls to himself. One thing I do know when I read, in what way have you loved me, Lord? He's going to come back and say this. Well, I have loved you by demonstrating my love for you. I demonstrate my love for you. God demonstrates his own love for us. How? While we were still sinners, that's how. Christ died for us. He made a way to have a relationship with him so that I could find some way to come to him through that way, which is the death, sacrifice, and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so I have that way provided to me by him, as an option, it's called salvation. It's called the gospel that offers us salvation. That's what God's done. Ultimately, that's the greatest thing he's ever done to show his love for us, right? I mean, that, that is the ultimate expression of his love. And today, if someone here does not know that in a relatively personal way, if you really don't understand that or know that, I don't know that you can fully understand it, but you can know it, that Jesus Christ loves you today. God loves you. He's offered his son. Jesus died for your life to save you. And he says with open-ended arms that he loves us. He loves the world. He gave his life for that, that no one should perish but have eternal life. Uh, And so he calls us to that. And I am thankful that he has done that because if he had not reached out to us in our wretched sinfulness and said that he loves us, we wouldn't know any of this. Do you know how, can you imagine, how accountable are we? How accountable are we for the fact of how much we know? Uh, the, uh, this, this crowd that I was talking about that Malachi was preaching to, I can give them some excuse. I can say, you know, you've only heard the stories. You didn't have to live the stories. It's, it's all new to you. And, and as the word of God's being read, they're responding. Many of them are responding in a right way and they want God to bless them and so on, having really no experience before that. And they saw some uh, other prophets like Ezekiel and so on demonstrating uh, God's word and his message. And so they had some of that light in their life. But honestly, they didn't know much else. And even with the light that we have, without Jesus Christ in our life, we would revert back to sinful things. That's our nature. But Jesus Christ comes, completes the story, and offers us not just a temporary fix or an emotional moment, but he offers us a life change through his own death for us on the cross. And today, your life can completely be changed if you can grasp that and receive that to yourself and say, I want that in my life because you have to want that that deeply. And it's not a short-term fix. It's a lifetime with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we're in a time today where that message is starting to wind down. It's starting to not be heard. So many people are not hearing the gospel 
especially those who have grown up looking at hypocrisy and inconsistency and all the, the things that take place even among Christians and are in a state of perhaps even denial about what is true. And I'm saying to you, I'm, I'm concerned about that. And so I want to preach all the louder to that, that if you're sitting here today with that kind of attitude, that's been something that Satan has done to steal you away from the absolute truth. And may this church somehow, at least if nothing else, be a place that actually exhibits and demonstrates the true gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts so that we can look each other in the eye and say, I love you in Christ. And as Paul has even had to say, I love you in Christ. Uh, and uh, we are who we are. And we are a reflection of truth. And we pray that, yeah, we're not perfect, but we are following the Christ that we love. And we're trying to be genuine about that. And not going to let anyone come in this place and steal that away. And I pray if you're here that God's spirit will speak to you and call you to himself in a way that you've never heard before. And I'm asking for those who are believers in Christ today to pray in your heart that God would do that. Because we have some in this place, we do, who really don't know if they're saved or not. And what a tragedy. Because we are definitely in last days. What a tragedy. And yet that can all change with one sincere decision to follow Christ. Would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, a message goes out and the first thing you say is to remind us that you love us. I'm so thankful that you would start that last prophecy, the final words from you before you shut down communication. 400 years later, you're going to speak to a priest and his wife. They're going to be surprised to hear you speaking and what you're saying, and it's going to be an incredible blessing that will have affected all of us in this room. Lord, may we hear, even today, looking back, because we have your word. We have your written word. We can look back and see and read what you have said. And to a rebellious crowd, a, a sinful crowd, some who are trying to do the right thing, many who are not, but you're saying to them that you love them. And you're saying the same thing to us today. But how can we not hear that and yet there's so much that tries to crowd that out Satan is speaking loud and clear against that and he wants to put in our minds that Christians are hypocrites and the church is not real it's phony and the story is is not true and all those thoughts are coming and bombarding us with perversions of truth and Lord here we are in these last days and I'm asking you to protect this church from those kinds of things, but also that you would open hearts while there's still a chance. And I ask that you'll do a work in our church in the days ahead that would just be recognized as impossible except for you. That you would call people to you that are just kind of quietly in the, in the back somewhere, just hiding Lord, that you would do a stirring in our midst. People would confess things that have been wrong in their life. And you would allow us as a church to have just a sense of purity, a sense of true and genuine brokenness before you. And that you can then use us in ways that we could never measure. I want to thank you for what you've done already, what you do in many hearts here. I want to thank you for the blessing of those who have responded to you in your grace. And I just ask, Lord, that you'd pour more of that out in our midst and bring peace and joy into lives that are not, are not satisfied today. You can do that. We ask your blessing on as we go. I pray for all who are here that you would just take us home or wherever we go today with just a sense, a renewed sense of your presence and your 
call to us and to evaluate our lives in light of the fact that you do still love us. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise and glory. We lift your name up high. We, we ask that this week we will walk as children of God and that you will receive the glory from our life. Someone will see Christ in our lives. And we say and pray this because we love you in Christ's name. 